been there. Done that. What's next? I'm Carlos Botero. And I'm Sinjin Flynn. Discover Beethoven's playful side in this episode of the Houston Symphonies on the Music as we talk about Beethoven's Symphony No. 8. In 1812, when Beethoven was composing his Eighth Symphony, he had already revolutionized music. Since the premiere of his Third Symphony in 1805, Beethoven had created a new musical style unlike anything anyone had ever heard before. In his groundbreaking new works, Beethoven showed the world that music could be heroic. Symphonies could storm the heavens, depict nature, and tell stories of struggle and triumph. However, Beethoven was not content to just rest on his laurels. He was always searching for new directions to explore in his music. Unlike many composers both before and after him, Beethoven insisted that each symphony he wrote have a distinct character. He refused to repeat himself. His fifth and sixth symphonies were masterpieces that embodied Beethoven's long preoccupation with themes of heroism and nature. After composing these pieces, Beethoven likely felt that he had finally been able to fully express his thoughts on these subjects. It was now time to explore new musical and emotional ideas in his next symphonies. As was typical for him, Beethoven began working on two contrasting symphonies at the same time. In a letter to a publisher, he described his seventh symphony as, quote, a grand symphony in A major. It is indeed a large and powerful work whose intense energy and rhythmic drive led Wagner, of all people, to call it the apotheosis of the dance. In contrast, Beethoven referred to his eighth as, quote, a smaller symphony in F. It is, in fact, the shortest symphony he ever wrote, and its character could not contrast more with those of the symphonies that immediately preceded it. Beethoven had already shown that his new style could be grand, heroic, and serious. In this symphony, perhaps, he wanted to show that his new style could also be comic, light-hearted, and fun. The spirit of the music looks back to the 18th century and the musical jokes of his old teacher, Joseph Haydn. Indeed, there is an air of nostalgia about this symphony, and in many ways Beethoven is paying homage to Haydn and Mozart and the music of his youth. The musical style, however, is unmistakable mature Beethoven. This symphony is also full of Beethoven's unmistakable sense of humor. While Beethoven is often depicted with frown and furrow brow, he was also well known during his life for his irrepressible jokes and loud goofos. <laughs> Perhaps the best examples of Beethoven's wit are found in his music, and this symphony is a prime example. As we will see, Beethoven's musical sense of humor ranged from the most sophisticated double-entenders to the downright slapstick. Despite the high spirits of this symphony, Beethoven was not without his troubles during the summer of 1812. 
His hearing, of course, continued its slow and agonizing decline. By this point, he could still mostly understand conversation if you stood very near to him and spoke loudly and clearly. It also helped if he had an ear trumpet. Nevertheless, his hearing had deteriorated to the point that he was forced to give up performing in public. He could no longer hear all of the instruments when the orchestra played. And when overseeing rehearsals, he sometimes had to judge tempos by watching how fast the violin bows changed direction. He also had an affair of the heart to consider. It was during this summer that he wrote his famous Immortal Beloved letter, a mysterious love letter to an unidentified woman. Here is a brief excerpt. Though still in bed, my thoughts go out to you, my immortal beloved, now and then joyfully, then subtly, waiting to learn whether or not fate will hear us. I can live only wholly with you or not at all. Yes, I am resolved to wander so long in distant lands from you until I can fly to your arms and say that I am really at home with you and can send my soul enwrapped in you into the land of spirits. It goes on and on like this. Throughout his life, Beethoven had a nearly continuous string of infatuations with unattainable women. Though he dreamed one day of settling down and starting a family, he also was afraid that marriage would interfere with his musical creativity. Some scholars speculate he may have either deliberately or subconsciously pursued women with whom he could never have a serious relationship. The example of his parents' unhappy marriage may also have deterred him from pursuing long-term commitments. In the letter, it becomes clear that this time his feelings were actually returned and that he and the mystery woman were in the middle of a passionate affair. It is also clear that there is some great obstacle to their being together. Over the years, scholars have waged wars in music journals over the identity of the immortal beloved, carrying banners for different women they believe to be Beethoven's great love. Though we may never know for sure, Maynard Solomon's proposal of Antony Brentano seems to be the most likely at present. She was in the right place at the right time. In public, she enjoyed a warm friendship with Beethoven, and she was already married to someone else. Whoever this woman was, she and Beethoven clearly did not live happily ever after. There are no other surviving love letters, and the relationship likely came to an end not long after this letter was written. Beethoven never married, and this was the only great love affair of Beethoven's life, so far as we know. Given the circumstances that surround its composition, the Eighth Symphony's high spirits and musical jokes are inspiring examples of Beethoven's resilience in the face of adversity. The Eighth Symphony gets right to the point. It doesn't begin with any grand gestures or long introductory passages, just a melody played by the whole orchestra. This melody first appeared in sketches for a piano concerto that Beethoven likely abandoned when he gave up public performances. It went like this. Beethoven replaced the beginning with this little idea. 
which contains much more potential for development than the simpler original version. The opening theme has a very clear, a very classical structure. It begins with a question in the full orchestra. Followed by a suggestion from the woodwinds that is emphatically repeated by the full orchestra. transitional passage begins, but soon gets stuck harmonically, building up to a grand pause. The resolution is rather anticlimactic. It almost sounds like the music is lost and unsure where to go next. We've reached a lovely new theme, but there's just one problem. The music is lost. As a joke, Beethoven has taken us to the wrong key. A musical key is essentially a bunch of notes that make up a scale. That's F major, the home key of the symphony. You can tell because the scale begins and ends on F. The note F is the center of gravity all of the other notes lead to. The first notes we hear in the symphony all belong to the F major scale. So the symphony is in F major. The first key we hear in a piece is kind of like home. Even if we venture away from it, at the end of the day, it's where we want to end up. Think of other keys as different places, some of which are closer to home than others. The more notes two kids have in common, the closer they are to each other, and the farther away from home you go, the more tension it creates in the music. This is a big part of how composers create the drama in music. Composers normally first go to keys that are close by the home key, especially up five notes. This is because there is only one note different between keys a fifth apart, in this case F major and C major. It's so close by, it's like walking across the street. Hear how smooth that is? Beethoven sneakily took a wrong turn and went to D major instead. Hear how strange that sounds? This is why the second theme has this lighter-than-air feeling to it, like it's floating up in the clouds. You can hear the music slip back down to earth here. The woodwinds then play the theme C major, the normal place to be. 
The only trouble is, now the theme ends with this weird sidestep figure. It took us from D major to C major the first time, but now it takes us somewhere else. This isn't even a key at all. It is an extremely unstable harmony called a diminished chord. It sounds like a woman tied to the train tracks. That's the one. Beethoven steers us back to C major, building up to an explosive outburst. This is followed by a smooth lyrical theme. Doesn't that sound familiar? It comes from that lost sounding music right before the second theme. Now it sounds a bit more sure of itself. Beethoven uses this figure to draw dividing lines in his score. It separates the first theme from the second theme, and now it ends the first large section of the movement, the exposition. Like the exposition of a novel, the exposition of a piece of music introduces the main ideas and characters that will be developed later. Normally composers repeat the exposition in a piece of music like this one, so this figure has to look backwards and forwards at the same time. The first time it goes back to the beginning, but the second time it goes somewhere else. What comes next is the development, which is like the rising action of a story. In it, the hidden potential of the musical ideas we have already met is revealed. quickly travels through many unstable keys, creating immense tension. Beethoven focuses almost exclusively on the opening five notes, repeating them obsessively. Last, the music arrives back in the home key of F major, with the opening theme in the cellos and the basses. We have reached the recapitulation, which acts as the denouement, resolving the tension and bringing all of the themes back to the home key. The lost second team now finds its way home, briefly appearing in the nearby key of B flat major before returning to the home key of F.
Dakota, however, still has a few surprises. Beethoven suddenly transports us to the distant key of D-flat major. Gradually, the music rises as it travels back home to F major. As the music dies away, the movement ends with a witty gesture that would have made Beethoven's teacher, Haydn, proud. The movement ends just as it began. The second movement is just as unconventional and light-hearted as the first. In place of the usual slow movement, Beethoven instead wrote a movement with a tempo marking of Allegretto Scherzando, or moderately paced and joking. This Allegretto Scherzando is one of a kind in Beethoven's symphonic output, and is the shortest symphonic movement that he ever wrote. One of Beethoven's early biographer, Anton Schindler, told us a famous story about this movement, claiming that it was inspired by the inventor or improver of the metronome, Beethoven's sometime friend, Johann Melzo. The story goes that the movement depicts someone practicing with a metronome, getting frustrated with it, and ultimately giving up. As evidence, Schindler offered a canon based on this movement's opening melody, which he claimed Beethoven wrote for Melzel at a party in 1812. Unfortunately, Schindler is a notoriously unreliable Beethoven biographer, who often invented such stories for his own nefarious ends. Modern Beethoven scholars have revealed that the canon was in fact a forgery written by Schindler many years after Beethoven's death, and have discovered a number of other problems with the story. Haydn's Clock Symphony has been proposed as an alternative source of inspiration. The trouble is, Beethoven's little allegretto does seem to tell some sort of story. From the first few bars, we are in the world of the theatre. The music instantly conjures up scenes from comic operas by Mozart and Rossini. The violins seem to be in some sort of dialogue with the cellos and basses, who play the role of the basso buffo to the hilt. And what are we to make of this passage? This is certainly descriptive music of some kind. We leave it to you to decide whether to buy into Schindler's program about a frustrated music student, which, reverse engineered or not, certainly fits the music.
the third movement is Beethoven's most heartfelt look back into the past. In place of one of Beethoven's usual high-energy scherzos, we have a minuet. The minuet was the most popular ballroom dance of the 18th century. By the time Beethoven wrote this symphony, however, its stately triple meter was already a symbol of a bygone era. Indeed, Beethoven had been one of the first composers to rebel against the minuet, replacing it with wild and unpredictable scherzos in his symphonies, sonatas and string quartets. Like the powdered wigs of the previous generation, minuets were cast aside as Beethoven revolutionized music. Considering this, Beethoven's contemporaries might have been surprised to discover that he had written a minuet of all things in his latest symphony. But this is not a minuet that Haydn or Mozart will have written. Beneath its smooth flowing surface, Beethoven has hidden a number of rhythmic tricks that made it his own. Listen to the way he stresses the second beat. One, two, three. One, two, three. Here he loses the second beat altogether. One, two, one, two. This is hardly a minuet one could dance to, but a pleasure nonetheless. The contrasting middle section features horns and clarinet in a melody of pure Mozartian grace. The strings wander to the distant key of A-flat major, as if lost in a daydream. In this movement especially, we can hear Beethoven's nostalgia for an earlier time. Perhaps he had found a way to make peace with the musical style that he had rebelled against in his youth. Beethoven saves his wildest ideas and most mischievous jokes for last. The finale begins with a soft, skittering theme in the strings. Although it is written for strings, Beethoven composed the beginning of it as if it were for horns. In the time before valved brass instruments, horns could play only a few of the notes available to modern instruments. This is why most traditional bugle calls only use a few notes. Before valved instruments, horn parts often sounded like this. Even though the opening theme is for strings, Beethoven imitates this style of horn music by only writing notes that could have been played by horns.
This association with the sound of horns creates an, a sort of an outdoorsy atmosphere. Perhaps there is a hunting party somewhere in the distance stalking its prey. Little do we realise, it is Beethoven who is sneaking up on us. Much scholarly ink has been spilt over that note, a C-sharp, or a D-flat, two names for the same note. Beethoven biographer Jan Sofford wrote that it just keeps blundering to the main theme like a drunken uncle at a party. Anthony Hopkins speaks of it, scaring the wits out of the gentry. And George Grove notes that Beethoven makes it as prominent and as unbearable as possible. C-sharp, or D-flat, is a totally unexpected note in F major. Hear what happens when it sneaks into an F major scale. This is just the first of Beethoven's tricks. After a transitional passage, the music moves toward the expected nearby key of C major, but instead slides into A flat for the lyrical second theme. gentle swell, and we are back in C. Fair enough, we have seen this trick before in the first movement. The end of the exposition, however, is where the real fun begins. Nothing is what it appears to be. The music returns to the home key of F major, and we hear what seems to be a return of the opening theme. We might assume that Beethoven has gone back to the beginning of the movement with an exposition repeat, but instead the music becomes fragmented and the harmonies unstable. What seemed like a repeat turns out to be the beginning of the development section. statement of the main theme. But in the wrong key. This fake return, if you like, is cut short and quickly replaced with the original in the home key of F major. We seem to have reached the recapitulation. As before, it is interrupted by that disturbing C sharp. But this time, the following transitional passage seems to stay in F major. When we reach the second theme, though, the music veers off into D flat major. D flat is the same note as C sharp. What was supposed to be the resolution of this theme in the home key turns out to reinforce the dissonance that has disturbed this movement from the beginning. 
though the music quickly returns to F major, the disturbance of the C-sharp D-flat remains an unanswered question. The recapitulation ends and we expect a coda. But instead the music begins to fragment again. Before long it becomes clear we are in a second development section. This never happens. In every other symphonic movement we have ever heard there is only one development. But Beethoven decides to give us another one. After an intense hammering passage, the opening theme returns. For another recapitulation, this time the music won't let go of the C sharp. And it thrusts the music into the strange and distant key of F sharp minor. Everything seems to be descending into chaos when Beethoven jerks the music back to the home key of F major as if to say, gotcha! At long last, the second theme returns, this time completely in F major, and all is resolved. Intent to keep us guessing to the end, Beethoven throws in a few more musical jokes before reassuring us that all is well. Although Beethoven finished this symphony in 1812, it did not receive its premiere until February 1814 at a typically long all-Beethoven concert in Vienna's Redoutensaal that also featured his Seventh Symphony and Wellington's Victory. While the Eighth Symphony was by no means coldly received, it was perhaps overshadowed by his grandest Seventh Symphony and the crowd-pleasing cannon fire of Wellington's Victory. As one critic wrote, it did not create a furore, although he believed it would have been more popular if given another chance. When Beethoven saw the audience liked his Eighth Symphony less than his Seventh, he is said to have remarked, that's because it's so much better. Given how packed the symphonies with some of Beethoven's most ingenious ideas, it is easy to see why he valued it so highly even if the public preferred the grander, more heroic works they had come to expect from him. The reactions of critics and audiences, however, were not what Beethoven best remembered about that premiere. As biographer John Swafford relates, it became a favourite story of his that after the concert, when he was walking on the Kahlenberg above Vienna, two young girls gave him some cherries, 
and when he offered to pay for them, one of them said, I'll take nothing from you. We saw you in the Redoutensaal when we heard your beautiful music. On the Music is a co-production of the Houston Symphony and Houston Public Media. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, visit houstonsymphony.org slash onthemusic. Please send your questions, comments and feedback to onthemusic at houstonsymphony.org. Thank you for listening.